Hello everyone. Welcome to the first episode of Scale by Bangladesh Angels. In this podcast series, we talk to entrepreneurs and investors who built and invested in businesses that have gone on to raise or generate revenues of millions of dollars, employ hundreds or more employees, and serve millions of users in order to unlock the secrets of scaling a company. In this episode, we have Patrick Plesner as speaker and Nirjur Rahman, CEO of Bangladesh Angels, as moderator. So Dr. Patrick Flesner uh, is a growth capital investor and a partner in the investment firm LeadX Capital Partners. Each year, he looks at hundreds of tech companies that wants to raise capital in order to accelerate growth. He sees patterns in companies that fail and companies that succeed. His respective growth expertise and his knowledge deriving from more than 16 years in private equity and venture capital have gone on into his latest book, Fast Scaling, for which the link will be shared in the chat. Prior to joining LeadX Capital Partners, where he built one of the largest European portfolios of B2B tech companies active in consumer industries, Patrick was a lawyer and partner at reputable German business law firms. His articles on venture capital and M&A have been published by renowned magazines like the MIT Sloan Management Review and the Global Corporate Venture Magazine. And hopefully we'll get some, uh, we'll get his uh, articles into some Bangladeshi publications soon as well. Uh, a little bit about Fast Scaling, the book. There's a graveyard full of startups that did not manage to get from initial traction to sustainable high growth. I think we're all familiar with that. Many of the founders try to sprint through the growth valley of death by focusing solely on top line growth. Fast scaling is a high growth handbook for founders and investors in which you may find your smart path to building and investing in a massively successful and valuable business. Patrick, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to Ban. Thanks for having me. It's incredible. And I'm excited to talk to business angels in Bangladesh. Awesome. Uh, We're excited to have you, Israel. I think you're the first speaker from, uh, from Germany that's joined one of these sessions. So we're, we're very excited to kind of learn from you and, and, and talk to you more. So thank you so much uh, for taking some of your time with us. Excellent. Um, so, you know, we'd like to kind of start at the beginning. So maybe I'll kind of take that as well. We learned a little bit about your background, but yeah, just, you know, where did you grow up um, and how did you end up in tech investing? Yeah. Um, where did I grow up? I grew up um, in the north of Germany. I, I've, I grew up and um, over time um, I decided um, to go to university and study and uh, I chose to study law. Um, still don't remember why, to be honest, because I always had this spirit. Um, I wanted to build a, a business over time. Um, so um, I don't know why I chose law. And during my studies, I always thought about maybe also studying economics in addition, um, changing subject. But uh, I was kind of too good uh, to, to uh, switch um, and uh, yeah, uh, continued studying and uh, until the end. Uh, wrote a doctor thesis on on international business contracts and also started out working for international business law firm Freshwood Brookhouse Deringer, where I advised in private equity funds and corporates on their um, buyout transactions uh, most of the time. Um, but still, there was this feeling that, you know, I'm on the wrong path. Um, and I discussed this many times also with, with my wife. And finally, uh, she said, you know, you need to do something about it. And uh, I did. I, I decided to do an MBA at INSEAD in order to get some, some more comfort around 
the business aspects of investing. And I wanted to switch sides afterwards, but this was in the middle of the financial crisis at that time, 2008, 2009. So I went back to law, became a partner at business law firms, but focused then more on venture, corporate venture capital and small um, M&A transactions. Um, and was looking for the right point in time to go on the investment side. Um, there were many chances but, and opportunities. But uh, finally, when Metro Group, one of my clients at that time, asked me whether I wanted to help um, establish their corporate venturing activities, I decided to join and made this move into, into the investment side of, of uh, private equity and venture. Yeah, and, and um, we've managed to, to build a, a great portfolio of 70 plus companies, 60 ish early stage companies, and some of them have, have certainly progressed and have become uh, growth co companies. Um, and um, I focused mainly on, on later stage investments, um, uh, invested also in Plan Day, a Copenhagen based company that we have just sold to, to zero. So over the last five years, I've seen, um, I think, companies that failed getting through this growth, growth rally of death. Some managed to do so, one IPO in Australia. Um, and certainly also I helped uh, scale the business in our growth portfolio. Um, yeah, and, and here I am. Um, Excellent. Well, it's always good to um, have a partner that, you know, kicks us into our destiny, right? Uh, so good to hear about that story and uh, good to hear a little bit about Lead X as well. Uh, you know, we'll go into kind of, you know, your thinking and, and how you, the frame of mind by which you kind of um, look at companies. But before we do, we're just to kind of spend a little bit more time with Lead X. Um, mm -hmm. And so just if you can tell us a little bit more. So, you know, I, I was reading that, you know, you, you the company or the fund focuses on, companies with $10 million in revenues, growing it over kind of 30% CAGR. Uh, why this particular focus? You know, how did that come about? Uh, yeah, how much are your typical ticket sizes? Yeah. How large of the rounds are you participating in, et cetera? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a, a bit of history required here. So the 2015, when we started out as LeadX, we were a kind of a corporate venture capital unit. Uh, so we were, supposed to invest in a strategic area, which meant to be B2B tech in consumer industries with a special focus on retail, wholesale, food, uh, and hospitality. Um, and certainly as usual for corporates, they also want to uh, understand the industry, the dynamics there. Um, <clears throat> so for us, it was important to not only invest in later stage companies, but also to invest in early stage companies where you see people working on long-term industry trends. And therefore we decided to establish a, a corporate venture capital units with two main funds, one early stage fund, one later stage fund. And the early stage fund essentially invested in companies that participated in our accelerator program that we initiated together with Techstars so this is where the 60 plus companies, early stage companies came about. Um, but from a financial uh, investment perspective, we as a team always believed that this early stage venture investing comes with a high risk, certainly. Um, you really have to create a diversified portfolio. You will only generate maybe two or three, four real winners, home runs that can return the whole fund. But this uh, is, is kind of, in my opinion, 
um, for, um, a little bit difficult for corporates who are not used to insolvencies. Um, and it, it, it felt better um, for the corporate to, to focus on, on the later stage investments. And also for us, we identified over time that this area between venture and buyout, so really companies that have matured, that have proven there is a, a business model, there is a market for the products and services that have validated the business model and continue to grow, that this is actually a very attractive market um, from a risk return uh, perspective. Um, and since February, we as a team have spun out of Metro Group. We continue managing or let's say advising Metro uh, in connection with the existing funds, but we are currently raising our second tech growth fund. And there we really focus on this segment of the market, 10 million in revenues, a 30% CAGR, and um, companies that have validated their business model, usually reflected in strong unit economics, kind of profitable growth. And as a consequence, if you invest in these kind of companies from a portfolio construction perspective, um, you will hopefully see that we invest in 10 to 12 companies that all, or hopefully almost all, also achieve um, or get to the finishing line. So it's not this, this power law uh, structure that we have that we look for unicorns. We really want to make, let's say, 3x on, on, on the fund by investing in companies that return between 10, uh, 2 and, and 4x uh, the money. Uh. Got it. And, and so that kind of answers my, my second question is just, you know, where did the investors come from? But I guess in, in the beginning, it, it was Metro Group, you know, and, and you were kind of operating under their umbrella or as, as part of them as a CVC. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so now, you know, just curious, you know, when we you talk about the the next iteration and sort of this in between venture and kind of buyout phase, you know, at 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 this stage, just curious, you know, because this is a, something we grapple with all the time. When it comes to valuations, I mean, is it still a bit of an art, or can you actually start kind of modeling the growth a little bit, start using DCF and other things, or is it still kind of based on comparables or maybe you know multiples or even just something a little bit more just based on negotiation? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, interesting question. And, and uh, I think there is no right and, or wrong in, in terms of valuing a company. I mean, when I explain it to my daughters, I always say, buy low, sell high. Yeah? Um, and this essentially explains it kind of because um, we certainly need to look also at the exit potential of that company. Yeah, and, and it's different in, in Europe than it is in, in the US, for example, and it's probably different in Asia. Um, so, but to un understanding and not overestimating the exit potential, I think is a very important uh, component of our valuation. Um, and then you can also calculate backwards if you want to make, let's say, 4x, what's, what's the maximum uh, valuation that you are willing to pay? And, and you also need to be uh, consistent there and also willing to walk if, if, if you don't see the valuation um, <clears throat> providing you with a decent money multiple that you can achieve. But certainly we would also look at market multiples. So probably very often revenue multiples, ARR multiples or gross margin multiples that we see in public, public comps to get an understanding of how the market, the public markets look at these kind of companies in the current state. Um, and then hopefully um, you can you can agree with the uh, and existing investors and the founders on the valuation where everybody is content with um, and, and says let let's do it because I always advocate towards founders don't look for the highest valuation possible 
uh, look for really good fit investors. Yeah? And, and your business angels, it's so important that there is a personal fit also, that you feel comfortable working on, on solving problems together, um, being there in there for, for a longer period of time. And I think if you, if you only look at valuation, you may end up with someone you, you don't want to work with, you try to avoid. And that is, I think, also um, one reason for failure that you, um, you have the wrong bedfellows around you. And, and uh, this applies to, to co-founders, to employees, but also to investors. But this is how, how we look at company valuations. And if you invest only in companies that have, let's say, that are not the unicorn games where that grow, let's say, 300% year over year, um, but only like a 30 percentage, I think this is also one, one component that you need to take into account when evaluating a, a company. Yeah? It's, it's current revenues, it's, it's growth, it's market size, it's potential, exit potential. So I would say it's an art, but there's not um, the one way to do it. Got it. And last couple of points on LeadX before we go into fast scaling. Um, yeah. So at, once again, at this stage, you know, particularly as it relates to your second fund, you know, what, what is the kind of key value addition strategy, right, uh, for you guys, um, especially now that you're on your own as opposed to, you know, being part of a larger group? And, and what is the exit strategy as well? Is it buyouts? Yeah. Um, so we are not connected to Metro Group anymore. So it's an independent fund. We were raised for independent LPs. Um, and we will continue focusing on B2B tech companies. And since we have been investing for more than five years in this consumer industry space, we will also focus on this vertical. So we would describe ourselves as a vertically focused fund. Um, we understand what consumers expect from B2C companies. We therefore understand how, how they need to adapt in order to thrive in this industry. And we understand you know, what digital solutions are needed uh, in order to, to thrive. So this is where we, uh, our investee companies come into play, the B2B tech companies. And how we create value? Well, there are many ways to do so. First of all, after five, six years in this industry, you really know the industry. You really can help companies and founders management teams make the right decisions can connect them with the right people. So we have not certainly a strong connection to Metro Group, but also to other retailers, wholesalers. Um, and, and our network is certainly very strong and we, and we use it for value creation. <clears throat> and then, and this is where also certainly my, my book plays a role. A role. It, it, it shows actually my experience, my knowledge, my insights um, in terms of how, how you can actually scale business successfully. And this is certainly also what we, uh, try to, to help our founders with, you know, make the right growth related decisions, help them scale the business and actually get through this growth valley of death. Excellent. Um, and so maybe this is a good segue um, into, you know, we definitely want to talk about your portfolio, but I think maybe we can sprinkle in some examples kind of throughout when we talk about fast scaling. Uh, and so this is kind of, you know, that's the next stage that I want to kind of deep dive into. Um, and is it all right, Patrick, if um, we go maybe 10 or 15 minutes a little over uh, the mark, uh, if that's all right? Yeah. Uh, and yeah, please do. Thank you. Thank you. No worries. <coughs> um, but um, yeah, so I think, you know, going into fast scaling, um, maybe just to kind of start off with, could you just tell us, you know, just short, you know, what is, what is fast scaling in your view and what are the core kind of building blocks of fast scaling? Mm -hmm. 
So what is fast scanning? Fast scanning is a growth strategy. Um, it's, it's one growth strategy. Um, <clears throat> I think it's an important way to scanning a business, but it's not the only one. The first chapter is also about understanding what is actually blitz scaling, what is fast scaling, what's the difference. Mm. <coughs> Sorry. Um, fast scaling has two building blocks. It's about validating the business model and only then accelerating growth versus, for example, blitz scaling, where you only look at top line growth and run, run, run. And we see it many times now in the industry. When you look at e-scooter companies, you look at um, delivery companies like Gorillas who raise like a billion, billions of, 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 of uh, euros in order to accelerate growth, but they all have not actually validated the business model. So these, these kind of companies, the e-scooter companies and, and, the, and the delivery companies may need to prioritize speed over efficiency because if, they, if it takes too much time, others will already have captured the market. And, and for, for this specific market, there are the dynamics that we require these companies to scale that fast. But what I've noticed when talking to founders is that people believe since this book, Blitz Scaling is out, this is the one and only way to scale businesses. It's about top line growth. And to be honest, very honest and transparent, I also meet angels who push founders only towards to top line growth. <clears throat> But what does this actually lead to? Um, if there is no need to, to accelerate growth, you are actually pouring cash into a company in order to speed up top line growth without having strong unit economics in place, without having found product market fit, a, a working distribution channel, you name it. And um, there's, then you, you scale top line growth, but you're not cash efficient. And you reach a certain point in time where you want to raise a series A or series B round and investors look at your company and say, <clears throat> well, you're not cash efficient. You're not, you're not growing cash efficiently. It's also not probably predictable your growth. <clears throat> and then these companies fail to raise these follow on rounds. And uh, what you can um, uh, read also in their post-mortems sometimes is, they failed because they ran out of cash. And that is, uh, for me, always a funny uh, thing to read. And if you, if you type in why startups fail, every list shows, you know, uh, they run out of cash. And in my view, you don't fail because you run out of cash, you run out of cash because you failed. Um, and, and your failures probably has to do something with leadership or, or with business aspects. And so fast scaling now is about showing founders how you can actually build a high growth business in a smart manner. And it might take a little bit longer to build this kind of massively valuable business, but the chances that they succeed are significantly higher. And I decided to write this book. Um, I thought about a longer term already, but I decided to write the book when, I, when I've come across a study conducted by Berkeley and Stanford uh, and genome report that revealed that 70% of startups failed due to premature scaling. And in my book, is essentially, I explain how you can avoid premature scaling, what you need to do for this. And um, it has a, a nine components that you can, can read here on, on, on the, on the, in the definition. Uh, uh, on the basis of a relentless and company-wide focus on customer success. So, so this focus on customer success is for me really important. Product market fit, product channel fit, strong unit economics, scalable technology, 
you efficiently and predictably scale, lead and scale. So leadership is also important uh, aspect, <clears throat> scale the business. Um, so it's, it's, it's nine components. And if you will, you can distinguish between two phases. The one is the, the establishment of a solid foundation, the growth foundation. And then it's about fast scaling. And maybe last, last but not least, fast scaling is probably slower growth, means slower growth than blitz scaling, but it doesn't mean slow growth. For me, it's more like I could have named this book also smart scaling. It's fast, but it's smart. It's efficient. And if you pursue it, hopefully founders have more stakes in their own business. So less dilution. The early investors like the angels don't get too much diluted by follow on rounds. So actually, everybody should be better off. And in my view, if I were to found a startup and the market would not require me um, to, to prioritize speed of efficiency, efficiency, I would fast scale and, until I reach the strategic inflection point where I can accelerate growth. So, so that's, I mean, I think the element of premature scaling is quite interesting. I think, you know, in my line of work, I think sometimes, particularly in a market like Bangladesh, there's almost kind of two lines of thinking. So the founders are very much into the blitz scaling mindset. You know, we need money, money, money now as much as possible so we can do marketing so then we can generate revenues. On the other side, I think um, depends on the angel, but we often get a lot of angels who, um, you know, might come from more traditional industries. And so they want profitability as soon as possible. Right. And sometimes there's a, and so it sounds like fast scaling is sort of a nice, it's a smart kind of in between. Uh, and there's the elements as kind of mentioned. And so let's deep dive into, into some of them so we can learn more. So the first is product market fit. Right. Then, um, and before, so before we jump in, oh, Maybe just, it's a really interesting point. I think it's, it's somewhere in between. Yes, it's, it's not about profitability, but it's about profitable growth, which means you, you have proven that, you know, you, you can generate real profits from your customers. Yeah, CLV is significantly higher than CAC. Yeah? And, and, and then you, you, you have maybe not achieved a, a profitable business, but you understand that the business model works. And then you can decide how much money do I now invest into this company in order to speed up growth. And you have this, this visibility on, on, um, on profitability and you can decide, do I want to become profitable now or do I go more in the cash flow trough and uh, in order to now invest in growth and, and um, have, have the, the profits over, over a longer period of time, maybe then a steeper growth or a steeper profitability growth uh, over time. And I think that is the beauty of this, taking a little bit more time in, at the beginning, showing that it's profitable growth, and then having the, the, the freedom to decide how much, how much cash I do I want to invest in order to, to, to get to this growth. Right. Um, no, uh, uh, and thank you for that. And I think it's, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot to kind of unpack there. Um, and so, the, you know, maybe the first kind of area is this building block of product market fit. Um, mm -hmm. First, you know, I'd love for you to kind of define it for us in, in your view, what that means. Uh, yeah. Go, if you can, yeah, define it for us. Yeah. I mean, so there is a market need. There is someone who is in, in need for something. Yeah. And you, solve the problem there's a pain and you solve the pain yeah this is in the simple terms when you when you have found product market fit so probably you will also encounter founders who pitch nice products to you that's really cool tech people will buy it i promise yeah so they start with the product 
I would always do it the other way around, start with a market, identify a market need, and then try to find a solution towards this, this market need. And I like the term also founder market fit, for example, where you see a founder has worked in the industry, has worked in the market, has experienced the pain him or herself, and now says, okay, I'm going to solve this problem. It's a huge market. So many other people have this problem. It's a large market. I try to solve it. And then you can also think about the lean startup movement, Eric Ries, and, and how to actually get to product market fit through the um, feedback loop. And, and so, yeah, you found somebody who has a need and your product can fulfill that need. And, you know, going deeper into this article, you had mentioned kind of two elements of product market fit, right? So a high willingness to pay by the customer as well as high contribution margin as in, and, and both of those relate to the company's pricing power relative to their consumer. So, but, you know, but what, you know, so if, if a founder or even an angel says, well, what about the Amazon model, right? Going for low volume, you know, high volumes and very low margins, uh, you know, isn't a startup supposed to kind of, you know, go for volume and, and scale right away? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it also has to do with the pain that the customer experiences. Um, you know, you could also say, if the if the pain is really strong, there's a high willingness to pay. Yeah, and and if you solve a really significant problem, people are are willing to pay more. And and this is for probably a more interesting market to be in, um, especially if you can also certainly generate a high high gross margin, a high contribution margin. So it's more what kind of market are you actually targeting? Um, and then certainly you have the, the, the low margin businesses. Very often you, you, you find them if you look at platform businesses uh, compared to SaaS where you can have see 80% gross margin, maybe 40% EBDA margin. It's, it's more like you have like maybe 20%, 15%-ish uh, gross margin. And from that gross margin or gross profit, at a certain point in time, <clears throat> this gross profit needs to cover also OPEX. So it's, it's, it's not from a margin perspective, uh, an attractive market, but um, very often it's an asset light model. And if you manage to scale supply side and demand side, we all know that marketplaces and platform business models can, can be awesome, awesome, awesome business models. Um, it's just a different game, right? You need to, re, um, you need to get to scale uh, fast in order to really ensure that at some point in time, you know, you, you generate profits. Makes sense. Um, another challenge I often see with founders kind of pitching at the seed stage, pre-seed stages, they are looking for product market fit. So they might sometimes have multiple products that they're trying to get out there and, and, and search for it. And, and what is your view on that? You know, should you kind of double down and, and try to find one product you know, and, and until you achieve product market fit there, or, or should you be constantly iterating and, and, you know, working with different ones or experimenting with different types of products? I mean, I mean, if you have identified your, your pain that you're going to solve, I think you need to find one product that solves this pain. Um, and until you have uh, found this product or product feature, you need to iterate <clears throat> and, 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 and experiment. Um, is it then a different product? Is it a different product feature? Um, you name it. I think it's, a, it's about experimenting and trying to find a solution for the problem. Um, and if you have found a product that solves the pain, then the question is, will you then also offer other products to the same customer? Um, and, and this is a, it's a good question because if you can sell more, if you can cross-sell or upsell, 
is certainly uh, awesome because you don't have to acquire this customer uh, again. Um, it's always cheaper to, to, to sell to existing customers. And if you then have also other products that they like, um, it's good to, to add products um, uh, to the roadmap and, and, and uh, to your offering. Mm. And as we all know, business is about innovation. If you stop innovating, you will fail at a certain point in time. So if you're only a one-trick pony, it's probably there will be an end, end of, of, your, of your game. Um, so I, I don't know whether this answers your question, but I think, yeah, it, it, it certainly also depends. For sure, as it does with, you know, um, you know, there's so many nuances to startups. Another question, I get it, you know, at the angel stage, a company is still looking for that iterative, scalable, repeatable business model and product, therefore product market fit. But as you get towards, you know, as you go beyond seed stage, right, as you start, as a founder starts pitching to people like you who are institutions, should they have already demonstrated product market fit? I, I think so. I, I think so. I mean, um, or at least you should show, I mean, for me, you should, yeah, it depends on, on, on where you are, what you have raised before. So there are so many variables, yeah. But I think it's all about if you can get to product market fit without raising further money, why would you go out? I would always try to demonstrate I have found product market fit. Yeah? Look at my numbers, look at my retention rates, customer retention rates, maybe at NPS. Um, there are so many ways to look at product market fit. Um, but if you can demonstrate that you have found product market fit, this is certainly, e then it's easier to raise money than, it, than if you tell your investors, well, we have raised a seed round, a pre-seed round, uh, and maybe pre-series A round, and, but we still haven't found product market fit. Yeah? I think many questions will pop up during DD. Right. Um, maybe moving on to the next kind of building block. And this is also interesting. So you found or talk about founder market fit, product market fit. There's also what you talked about. Uh, you, you also talk about product channel fit. Um, and so, you know, given your space, I, you know, I guess B2C and, and B2B SaaS, what are some examples of successful channels maybe from experience with your portfolio? Yeah. Um, so product channel fit, maybe maybe first, what, what does it actually mean? It means... Um, it's, it's nice to have a product market fit, a product that solves the pain, but if you cannot distribute that solution to your customers, um, I mean, what good is product market fit? I think that is, that is uh, how I approach the second building block. And then it's not about finding a way to sell the products, but also about finding a smart way to sell the products, a way where your customer acquisition costs are uh, really low compared to your customer lifetime value. Um, and and like product market like product product market fit product channel fit is, is is not binary either so it's it's really about um, looking at product channel fit from from many perspectives and and maybe now to your to your question examples um, from our portfolio company maybe just um, it's it's um, it's 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 tough enough to find one working channel and sometimes um, you can only find this one channel. Yeah? So we have a, a POS company in our portfolio that is really successful in terms of uh, inbound sales. Yeah? <clears throat> it's about organic, uh, generating organic leads, um, uh, paid marketing, 
um, in order to generate the leads and then having them converted uh, through in inbound uh, sales teams, inside sales teams. Now, if you, if you were to ask me, um, couldn't we find other channels? Yeah? People would always ask, you know, uh, couldn't we work with partners here? Yeah? Um, it's also then about an, a different way of generating leads. Uh, if the partner is not converting uh, the leads um, uh, itself, um, but it's a different game. And, and, and the partners, the partner channel is um, something I think I have discussed on all boards I've been active on uh, and with, with so many companies, um, partners is a, is a special an, an animal because they have their own, their own goals and you, you, you need to make them happy. The partners, you make them happy, you make, make the customer happy. <clears throat> and then only uh, at, at the latest point in time, you think about yourself. So it's, it's really difficult to get this channel working. Um, so I think focus is really important. Um, and here, as long as the channel is working, you can, you can experiment with other channels. But I think until you have found another working channel, which is rare, uh, I think you should focus on this one channel that works. Um, and unfortunately, um, <clears throat> I also see, um, and this is again top line goal, companies who have six or seven channels uh, working in parallel, but working not in terms of unit economics, they have just um, uh, events, partner, partner channel, inbound channel, outbound channel. <clears throat> and then, you know, if you, if you, if you look at, at the unit economics, um, maybe on an average basis, it's, it's, it's okay-ish, yeah? but if you delve into each channel, you will identify actually there are five channels that are not working. The customers that you acquire, um, I've, I've noticed um, some companies where um, it was not profitable at all. So, so CAC was higher than, than CLV in, in the specific channel, but they nevertheless pursued this channel because it meant top line growth. Um, but you, you, you buy revenues if, if you pursue this kind of strategy. And I'm always a fan of uh, also analyzing channels, products, customer segments in order to really understand in which segment do you have product market fit, which channel actually works, where should we focus on, and isn't it maybe smarter to, uh, to close down one channel that is not working and focus more of, of cash, efforts, time on the other channel. Makes sense. And, and another element of, you know, getting to product channel fit is you, you talked about cross-functional teams where marketing and sales have to work very hand in hand with tech and, and product development to optimize those same channels, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think um, this company-wide approach, <clears throat> I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of this. So I also like the, the growth hacking teams that, you know, holistically look at problems and, and, and growth opportunities and uh, product channel fit. I think the, the easiest example is, you know, um, you have product teams uh, and tech teams that develop a great product and then they, they show it to sales and marketing and they, they, they have no clue how to sell this product uh, um, or the other way around. Um, and the, the sales and marketing teams have a great channel, but there's no product that you can sell through the channel. So I think as early as possible, uh, you should actually create some kind of task force uh, if you want to experiment with a new channel, with a new product, I think having a holistic view, a diverse team that looks at the problem at hand, this is really beneficial in the long run um, because you, you um, can avoid a lot of time and, and, and uh, money spent in, in the wrong direction if you just uh, 
work with a small group that is not diverse and, and doesn't um, cover all, all departments. Uh, you could also and should also include finance, right? <clears throat> Data analytics people. Uh, um, so really understand, you know, not only is it, uh, I can sell the product and there is a product, also someone from finance who understands, yeah, man, the KPIs do, do also make sense. Um, the, the cohorts make sense. Um, so it's really about getting a holistic view. Yeah, just curious on on that side. Who should lead that? Like, you know, is it the CEO or is it the product manager? I, mean, I guess it depends on the size of the company as well. Yeah, it depends on the size of the company and and so many questions. And um, also, uh, when when you know, I talk to to, to founders or, or companies, and even if we decide not to continue um, the approach early on because there's, for example, not a fit with our our investment scope, I always ask, you know, how do you deal with growth? Do you have a growth team? It's, I'm really always curious to understand how founders think about this. And you get various answers and, and different answers. And, and I think that's also fair. So if you if you have like already a, a good a good traction, a, a decent company, then you can maybe work with growth teams. And then the question is, you know, is it is it under the chief revenue officers? Is it under the CEO? Um, <clears throat> there, there are different ways to, 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 to do this as long as you really ensure that people um, can can people are heard other people listen uh, and you have really teams that work as a team um, so I wouldn't say there is a right or wrong for me if it comes to growth I'm, I'm a huge fan of a chief revenue officer if, if the company is big enough someone who's really in charge of all revenues you know, all channels all products um, and that that's that's what I like most um, but there is no 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 right or wrong product. Can it be? It can be chief revenues. Can be CEO. It depends on on size and stage. I, I want to keep moving because I want to definitely touch on unit economics. But before we get there, uh, you also talk about market sizing as another element of, of this and and having your market right, identifying your market correctly. And so obviously, you know, we're all familiar with the TAM Samsung framework. You know, you <laughs> define the TAM right. You define the TAM as uh, the total addressable market is, in essence, the total addressable market equals the annual revenues that your business could make if it achieved a 100% market share in your key target market. I think we're okay with that. But moving downward, right, one level down at the SAM, and you talk about top-down versus bottom-up sizing of the market. Could you, you know, I, I know we don't have a lot of time, but would love to learn more about, you know, how that could be done. Um, certainly, we all <clears throat> know this time, some, some. Um, maybe first of all, <clears throat> um, I would say 90% of all founders I work with overestimate the market size yeah? or show me, show me these huge bubbles. It's a 10 billion market that we are targeting and then they stop with their market analysis or their pitch, yeah? <clears throat> which is um, not really helpful. Um, so I think I would always do it bottom up, but let's focus on top down. You find a, a good source really reflecting your specific market, <clears throat> then you have a number of a market. Let's say you have one, one billion, and then you go to the next step. And, and maybe to, to, to say this, uh, we always in our team say, we, we don't care about time. Uh, it's, it's not a term, it's, 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 it's Sam and some that we are interested in. Uh, um, but you, you need to start somewhere and you need to understand how big is the market in total. And, and if you find a, a source, um, that is trustworthy, really talks about your target customers, your target market, 
And then you can also work with a top-down approach. But I would always go bottom up and say, how many customers are actually out there in the market? And I need to define my key target customers, not, not potential customers, but really key target customers. And how much would they be willing to, or are they willing to pay? So you have to get to 10. So and the second uh, um, uh, level is certainly what of that market is actually addressable. And you, this is where it already, where, where founders make a lot of mistakes in my view. So it's really about, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's about the whole business model canvas as you want. Now, can, can I, what kind of geographies can I actually target in, 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 the, in the respective time frame? So if, if you can only sell into, into Europe, yeah, you, do, you don't care anymore about Asia and, 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 and the rest of the world. So that reduces your time already. Then, you know, if you, if you, if you sell for, to restaurants, for example, let's say four years ago, um, you could say, yeah, maybe there are um, one million restaurants in, in, in Europe, but how many would actually deploy a digital solution and, and, and skip from pen and paper to digital? Yeah? So it's really about, you know, they are, they are potential customers, but can you really address them? It's really about understanding how many of the potential customers you can really address and sell to. And then the th third aspect is certainly, yeah, you, you can theoretically sell to these kind of customers. So how many can you actually convert? And then it, uh, it's all about understanding competition. Um, and I think if a fair rule of thumb is what I always see is like people assume if we are, uh, if we if we if we create a great product and and, and we 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 thrive, maybe we can convert twenty percent. Um, but this is not only a rule of thumb, and it it might not be really helpful. It's it's um, if you have already traction, you could for example look at your conversion funnel. Yeah, if you, if you really are smart and only target your key target customers, let's say one hundred, and you convert twenty of them, it's twenty percent conversion rate, and then you have some kind of validation that this twenty percent uh, number makes sense. And then you end up understanding um, the, the SOM, the service obtainable market, which is the most important market because if you compare this SOM with the business model that you, you get from your, from your founders, um, maybe it's a hockey stick, hopefully it's not a hockey stick, but you compare, you know, where do they want to be in four years? And does this actually match the market sizing that you've done? And, and we do a lot of market sizing ourselves because um, we 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 see too many people overestimating the market. Makes sense. Um, you know, given the time, I think we'll kind of keep moving, and because I really want to spend some time on unit economics. Um, and Ariana, if you can go to the unit economics um, sheet. Uh, but yeah, I mean, from from my experience with unit economics, you know, it's it's very tricky because founders have this tendency to conflate what they want versus what they have. You, know, you talked about, you know, actual conversion rates. And, and so typically what I see with, you know, economics lifetime value is, you know, here's the average order value that we want, you know, times, you know, how many years are going to be customers with us. Um, and then that's, that's our, you know, LTV. So it's almost useless, right? Um, at, at least I've seen some slides like that. You define unit economics as high average revenue or, you know, the elements of unit economics are, higher average revenue per customer, high contribution margin, low churn, and ultimately a high customer lifetime value are usually the consequences of product market fit. 
And when compared against a low CAC, a customer acquisition cost, that means you know the faster payback on customer acquisition, which means you should double down on whatever, both the product and obviously the channel and, and other things that you've been building on, on top of that, right? So I, I wanna kind of go a little deeper. Actually, Ariana, maybe I will share my screen uh, because um, you, do, um, you do have a really great um, framework. Uh, one second, sorry. I think it's really important to distinguish between the business models. I think there yes. is one, one overarching view uh, on unit economics, which is actually how much contribution can you generate from one or an average customer over the customer lifetime. And then you have the, the revenues, you have the, 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 um, the gross margin because you need to take into account the gross margin. Some founders forget this and you need to calculate the, the, the lifetime. And this is more generic, the customer lifetime value. And the CAC is easy. It's, well, well it's, it should be easy. It's all marketing and sales expenses divided by number of customers. And we also see people um, uh, leaving out, for example, brand marketing because uh, we don't do this to acquire customers. I think, what the hell do you do it then for? Um, but um, I think that that's in, in generic terms, CLV, CAC, how I look at it. And then you need to distinguish between SaaS models, which I think, the calculation is, is quite easy because what do you need? You need the average revenue per, per customer. You need the gross margin. You don't have this if, if you look at your at your number of customers and your and, and your PL. And the lifetime value or the lifetime is also uh, uh, quite easy um, to be calculated. One divided by churn rate, you have your lifetime, and then you have the CLV, and the CAC is then the easy part. <clears throat> so where, where it becomes tricky is, and that is um, here what you what you show here is, um, is um, the CLV CAC calculation for platform business models. And I <clears throat> wrote a, a blog article especially about this topic because there is not much out there. And what you can find out there, at least in my humble view, is, is not how you should do it. Uh -huh. So why is it different if you look at platform business models or marketplaces? It's, it's easy to answer because um, if a customer buys a product and doesn't return for six months, doesn't mean the customer has churned. Yeah? He might come back in, 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 in six months, in eight months, in nine months. So you cannot really work with churn rate here. Instead, you, what, what I propose here is to look at, um, at your cohorts of customers and understand um, if, if you look at the first month, what, on, what is the average revenue generated by an average customer in the first month? You, you multiply it again with your contribution margin. So you really understand what is the contribution generated in, 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 in month one. And then you look at your cohorts. And if you uh, look at platform business models, marketplaces, you see cohorts, um, look at the revenue retention, and you see uh, sometimes uh, a retention that is higher than 100%, some go down to 40 to 20%. But if you look at your cohorts, you then understand how much of that first month revenue you can generate in month two to two, 48, if you, if you talk about it, let's say four years period. And then you calculate, you know, it's the first month contribution plus the contribution in the next 47 months, you get to the customer lifetime value if you assume a, a four year, um, <clears throat> a four-year lifetime. And on, on the CAC side, is it there is also very often um, is a mistake being, being made because um, if you look at platform business models, you have to acquire supply and you have to um, acquire demand. 
Um, and sometimes I see founders who, who um, calculate a CRV CAC for both sides of the platform, which might be okay if, if, if they are both pay, paying uh, sides of the customer uh, of the platform. Um, but usually you have one side that is paying uh, and then you need to really understand where actually to put um, the, the cost that you um, uh, incur in order to acquire, for example, supply if on the demand side pays. Um, and this is also reflected here in my view, if you, that's, if you, if you need the supply in order, to, in order to solve the pain of your customer side, this is kind of your product. And th therefore, I believe it should go into the contribution margin calculation of your CLV. Others say it should be an average CAC, it should go into CAC. Um, but as there is no textbook dealing with this topic, maybe this was also the reason why so many people picked up this, this article um, and, and, and reached out to me. Um, so uh, in essence, I think the generic way of looking at it, SaaS is easy to calculate, platform is very difficult, and there are many ways how you can do it, and people um, advocate different ways to, to do so. And, and, you know, maybe kind of staying true to the doctor in, in your name, you know, maybe you could also give us a, a, a little bit of a lesson here, uh, right? And so I, I understand that this is more from a platform perspective, less from a SaaS perspective, which might be a little bit more simpler. And maybe in the future, you know, we could kind of write articles and kind of difference between both. I, I, I do want to kind of just tease out some of this, right? Some of the elements here, um, especially for the, uh, the purpose of the audience. So, yeah, so once again, just curious, you know, once again, why calculate that first month average customer value, I guess, as part of a cohort? Uh, and, and why is that kind of here twice? That was one question I had. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it's, it not, it's not actually twice uh, in, in there. So let's, uh, if you focus at the first month, you understand first month average booking value. So if you look at your cohorts, what is the average, let's say an AOV um, booking value, what you name it, it's, it's, it's GMV, it's, it's really um, uh, revenue, external revenues. Then you usually have a take rate uh, or a commission. So you get really to your internal revenues. And if you then multiply it with your contribution margin, you get to the contribution of an average customer in the first month. So, and, and if you stopped there, this would mean your customer lifetime value would be the first month average customer value. But as we all know, customers return, hopefully. Uh, um, and then the question is, how often do they come back? And so it's the first uh, part, the red part is about understanding the value generated in the first month. And the terminal average customer value, the orange part is now about the residual time um, over the lifetime of a customer. And then you, you need to calculate the value that a customer generates in, in, generates in month two, three, four, and so on. And this is, let's look, at, look only at, at um, month two. What will you generate in month two? Let's assume 20% revenue retention. Yeah. So you have the first month um, value and of that revenue, you can, um, uh, you have 20% in, in, in month two. This is why it shows up again. You have the first month average booking value, you have the take rate, you have the contribution margin, and now you have the average booking value retention. This is the 20%. And then you have like, this is then month two, but you also have a retention period. It's, it does not only end in, in month two, maybe it's 40, 47 months, 60 months. And this is the last point, it's the retention period. So 
Um, in essence, you have the first month um, contribution margin. And then for, for the next month, you have the contribution margin of the first month times the revenue retention rate times the number of months that, that, that uh, customers is uh, on average being retained. I, I, yeah, um, for my benefit and maybe for some of those in the room, I'm, I'm always, you know, so I understand what take rate is. That's the actual kind of, you know, of the slice of the GMV that the, the platform takes in is able to kind of, it's commission, right? Essentially um, yeah. contribution margin. I understand it to be gross margin, but I'm always confused. You know, when there's contribution margin, one, two, three, four, uh, maybe if you could just also define what contribution margin is. Yeah. Um, so I think gross margin is, 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 is clear. I mean, it's all product related costs that go in there. Um, but contribution margin, I think if there are other variable costs that are not COX, they should also be taken into account. Yeah. Um, and, and now, yeah, what, what kind of examples can you have? And maybe, maybe for the platform again, I was um, saying that, you know, actually the, the costs acquired to create supply is kind of product related cost, but it's it's not Cox. So I, I put it into contribution margin, for example. Um, but the contribution margin, if you look at contribution margin one, some say it's gross margin. What is contribution margin two then? It's some other direct costs, <clears throat> variable costs that are, that are not Cox, but you shouldn't go as far as include marketing and sales because this is actually, it goes into CAC. Um, but I think I, I purposefully use contribution margin because I need founders to think about not only the gross margin, um, but really about all costs related to the specific sale. Um, and, and, and maybe you also have experienced this. If I look at platform business models, they show me a gross margin and I just look into OPEX and identify two to three uh, items that actually are COPS. Um, so um, it depends certainly also how you, how you actually establish your PL. I think it's really to make sure um, you need to allocate the costs um, with your uh, to, to the sale that you that you have done. And easier, then, would be, easier, would, easier would be to say gross margin, but it's it's not always correct. Got it. And then average booking value. So that's essentially the churn rate, isn't it? You know, that's the um, amount of uh, or the revenue retention rate, isn't it? Uh, yeah, exactly. So if, if you if you have the first 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 customer who has an order value of one hundred euros, let's say a take rate of of twenty percent, so twenty percent internal revenues for the for the um, for the company, um, and then let's say you have a contribution margin of <clears throat> of ten percent, you you generate two euros contribution in in year uh, in in month one, and then you look okay, my cohorts show me that um, I can let's say for, for the sake of easiness, uh, retain 50% in, in, in month two, you take 50% of the year uh, of the month one and you enter with one, one euro in, in month two. And, and then you continue. Got it. Yeah. Got it. And retention periods. Right. And, and retention, oh, 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 go ahead. No, it's, it's really important to work with cohorts and because I think this churn, churn, way of looking at platforms in my view doesn't work uh, and, and and if you if you see the revenue retention cohorts you understand and uh, you can be actually really precise you can see an average retention in month two is 50 percent and month three is 35 percent you can can be really granular but i think that is overdoing it 
if you look at, at say 48 months, on average, um, you can retain 20% of the revenues that you have generated in month one, you have a clear view on, on your customer lifetime value. And the retention period is really, it's like N, it's like the number of months, because what you are calculating in red is month one, the first four buckets are, are what you can generate in the following months. And then you need to understand how many of these following, following months do you have revenues actually. And this is like in an example of a 48 year, uh, 48 months lifetime, you would say red is month one and orange is month um, two to, to, to 48. Um, it's essentially the retention period is 47 months. After, after month so, one. I apologize for being so granular, but it's really fascinating to me. And, um, <laughs> and but uh, so even even retention period, right? So let's say I've got five people in a cohort. You know, they join in month one. Somebody, you know, a couple of them drop off in month two. A couple of them drop off in month four. The last person drops off in month five. For the purpose of this calculation, the retention period isn't five. It's the average of the drop off periods. Is that correct? Um, and that's, that's, I think, a really good question. I think, yeah, I mean, you would say, I mean, if you look at the cohorts, um, there's, a, there's a link to, to the, the revenue retention. I think if you, if you look at the revenue retention, you will also have to look at the same. It, it needs to be, it's, it needs to be, um, it, how can I describe this? Um, so it, it's, it's, I mean, you look at the cohort and the customer retention and you see that maybe after 48 months, um, um, there, there are no customers. So that's the easy one. There are no customers anymore. Yeah. And over that period, right. you look at, at how much revenue you have put you retain over that time on average. Then, 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 then it's easy. Most of the times you see like, you know, cohorts that get to, let's say, 20% uh, customer retention and they continue. Uh, so you can, can go out even further. But I think... Um, that is then something that you need to decide on a, on a case by case basis where you say, how long is the period? And if, if you, if you go out further, certainly the revenue tension rate on average goes down. So it does, I think it correlates a little bit it's difficult to explain here on, on, on the video call, but I think that that's the point. Yeah, no worries. And I'm sure we could do a whole seminar or webinar on, on, <laughs> on, on unit economics. So maybe I'll just kind of just one last thing, you know, on the cost side. So once again, are these costs at the company-wide level or costs attributed to the cohort itself? Um, no, that, that is the, the, the calculation for the average customer because we, we have um, uh, the CRV, we calculated for the average customer. And certainly we also need to calculate then the CAC for, for the average customer in order that to, to compare apples with apples. So it's, it's here, it's sales cost and marketing costs <clears throat> divided by the number of, of new paying customers acquired in the specific period. And you could certainly do this on a cohort basis. Uh, so cohort May 21 uh, um, will probably generate, in, if, if I look at the historics, this kind of CLV, how much did it cost me to acquire this cohort? Uh, but, but I would do it on, a, on, a, on an average uh, basis here. I mean, be, be aware of averages, but usually that works here. Got it. Um, I think I'll just kind of, I, I, I probably have bored quite a few folks on this. So, um, you know, but maybe before we go to the questions, maybe I'll just kind of go to a couple more points. So one on um, customer success. So, um, right. So, you know, 
I think you, you mentioned kind of you know, con going back to the unit economics to really optimize it. It's important to invest in customer success. Um, and we've all heard about the term, you know, customer success managers and startups, but yeah. just curious, you know, I mean, when you have somebody, you know, these relationship managers, these customer success managers, that seems like a very high touch approach. Uh, and so, you know, but obviously startups are all about scale, right? Uh, and cost efficiency. So how do you find the balance between the two? And, uh, and how do you, you know, truly scale customer success if it, if it does end up being pretty high touch? So very, very good question. Um, before I answer this, maybe this is now the first component of the fast scaling building block. I think if you if you look at fast scaling again, the establishment of the of the foundation, it was product market fit, product channel fit. Usually they turn into a strong unit economics. You have a decent market, and the um, technology needs to be scalable. I think also something that some some struggle with. Uh, and then if you have this foundation in place, people tend to say, now let's invest into marketing and sales. And and my 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 counters always. Don't focus on marketing and sales, continue focusing on the customer. If you make the customer successful, yeah, um, you, you, will, you can continue to generate high contributions. They will stick around, they will not churn. So your customer lifetime will be really high. Um, if you can continue on a, on a decent CAC, um, you will also have a, a certain short payback period, which will enable you to grow fast. <clears throat> it's, it's really profitable, uh, incremental growth. And this is why I think customer success is so, so, so important. It's a not, not about now pouring money into marketing and sales. To your question, it's you can make customers successful and happy without customer success managers. Again, this depends absolutely on the, on the business model. Yeah? You can, customer success, I thought a lot about you know, what it actually means to me. <clears throat> it's, 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 it's customer experience, a good customer experience, yeah? be it on, on the website. Uh, fast loading, um, not too many clicks until you can get to check out. There are so many um, things, uh, ways how, how you could look at customer experience. Yeah? But I personally, if I'm, I'm probably a pretty pretty problematic buyer, um, yeah, I really want it easy. It, it should be easy. And, and, and I personally do not want to talk to people. Uh, I prefer everything else. Um, so my, my experience can be, can be different than, than others, but I think customer experience is really important. And the second part is return on investment. So if I if, if I buy something or if I um, uh, you know subscribe to a SaaS business, I really want to make want to see that the the service and the products you know um, generates a great return for me as a customer. Uh, it's not about the the company. So and if you look at these two variables, um, customer experience and customer uh, return on investment for the customer. You can, you can create this in an e-commerce model without customer service. Maybe you need support. And then the question is, do you need personal support? Do you need, uh, can you also work with chatbots? What is the easy way and a, and a low cost way to make the customer happy, but the customer should be happy. I think that's, that, is, that is really important. In a SaaS business, um, customer success, um, you see customer success people, um, and um, they make a ton of sense um, for various reasons, um, but also, I mean, depends on, on the service that you sell. But if, if, you, if the customers are in need for service um, or they need a certain activation onboarding in order to get to this wow moment fast, um, I think they are really important. And, but this, again, depends so much on, on the company at hand um, that is tot totally different. And you could also say, Customer success is in, in charge of up and cross sell maybe. 
Um, but for me, customer success is really about someone who makes sure the customer is successful. And maybe last point, I think um, if you if you if you uh, look at the growth hacking methodology, <clears throat> it's really about also identifying one point in time or one incident that needs to happen um, where the, the customers become loyal long-term customers. Huh? I think Facebook was it, I think was it seven, seven new friends in, 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 a, in a few days. These were the really, really good customers. You need to identify this. And if you have identified them, you need people to work, work on this to make this happen, to get to this wow moment that the customers are happy and stick. Um, and that, therefore, thousand reasons why I'm a strong believer in customer success. Excellent. Uh, so it's more of an ethos rather than a particular line on an org chart, isn't it? Um, which makes perfect sense. Um, so many more questions to ask you, but I think it might make more sense for me to just pick your brains and, and maybe we could start writing some articles together. But, um, but before, you know, uh, we've got a few minutes. I'd love to open the questions. Um, if anybody wants to ask any questions, uh, feel free to unmute yourself uh, and go ahead and introduce yourself and ask. Um, otherwise, I will go to one question that came through from Saif Abdullah Bhai in, in Dhaka, I, I think. Uh, what would be your advice for delivery companies to raise funds as their OPEX is very high due to setup costs and break-even time to minimize is quite long? So um, I'm not a believer in the delivery companies. I don't understand why, why the, you know, there is the service. I, I, um, I, I doubt that people will be willing to pay for the services, uh, and, and I don't. I doubt that this will be uh, companies that um, uh, will show uh, profitable profitability at one point in time. Just recently, a sifted article article was published um, where the editor asked, "You know, is this another WeWork gorillas?" <clears throat> I think it is. Um, so, so you are talking to someone who is not a believer at all. Um, but you know, if the delivery companies, if you if you try to analyze the model. It has a lot to do with um, how many deliveries can be done in an hour. Um, and this is also the most problematic topic because let's assume a delivery company, there is someone who can do two deliveries per hour. Um, and if you charge, I think Gorillas charge only two euros, they charge the customer four euros for one hour. Uh, and, and this is then the revenue. Uh, 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 maybe you can do something on the margin side, the products that you sell. Uh, but depends, you know, if you look at Gorillas, retail is already a thin margin business. How much can you charge actually there until the customer says, well, it's way more expensive than in the supermarket. Uh, and then you can, you can argue, okay, then I, I charge more for delivery and say, well, I, I don't want to pay 10 euros for, for the delivery and then I go myself. So I think there's only a number of deliveries that you can do per hour. And this restricts the, the, profitable, the profitability that you can generate in one hour. And I doubt that this will at any point in time cover COX and, and OPEX um, until maybe we see drones flying around and uh, making deliveries, let's say six, eight, 10 deliveries per hour, then the model can work. And maybe from an investor perspective, this is where everybody's waiting for consolidation. And maybe at some point in time, um, that there is other that there's other options to do to make these deliveries, but you see, I'm skeptical. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. And, and, and I mean, and that's also, I guess, the question, right? Because in in the US, there's companies like GoPuff and and others have come through. And yeah, I mean, do the unit economics make sense? Um, not sure. 
but they will burn a lot of investor capital in, in, in the meantime. Uh, so this is another building block about leadership. And, and you know, that you, you mentioned that's another kind of key piece of the puzzle. And I'm just curious, you know, for you, you've seen, like you said, you've seen a lot of different companies at a lot of different stages. What are what should be the priorities of a CEO when a company's, let's say, five people versus 50 versus 500 uh, from best practice from your you know, portfolio? I think um, it's a very good question. And actually, the book is actually meant for these kind of founders yeah, that, that, you know, maybe struggle uh, with the transition from, from, from being a founder to becoming a CEO. Um, and it's about, I think, enabling founders to understand holistically the business and enabling the founders to act. Because if you grow, you cannot solve everything on your own. You need people, you need to be able to delegate, but you still need to be able to, to have the long-term view, to, to provide a, the guiding star, the vision. And then, you know, really, um, if, you, if you understand that there is a problem, you must be able to ask the right questions. And I unfortunately also uh, have worked with founders where the problem dragged out for, for months, if not almost years, where, for example, marketing was blaming sales for poor conversion, sales was uh, blaming marketing for generating poor leads, and nothing happened. Nobody really delved deep into the topic in order to understand what is actually the problem. Um, um, and I, I then decided to have a workshop with the, with the company in order to identify this, the problem and solve it. But I think the book was meant to, to really give founders some kind of guidance um, in a holistic view of what, what, what needs to happen in order to be successful. Um, and yeah, it's, it's about still continuing on the vision, trying to change something, the world, um, the business in the industry, how is business being done, um, be the visionary. <clears throat> I always, you know, or in the book, I, I say, I like to work with like say self-aware founders. They understand their weaknesses and strengths and are not the, I know it all better uh, people. So they try to reach out to people for help. Um, I also think that communication skills are really important. It's not only about you know, showing the strategy and the vision and the North Star, but also about being a good leader in terms of solving conflicts in the company, uh, creating a strong company culture. Um, so I think leadership is also then about, you know, I talk about a building block versus efficient growth. You cannot ask everybody to, to focus on growing efficiently and then spending uh, uh, without any constraints yourself. Um, it's being a role model. Um, and, and if you want to fast scale, I mean, you, you, you need to live up to, to, to the methodology yourself, right? If customer success is important, put this on the, on the dashboards in, in, in your office rooms and, and not only top line growth. Makes a ton of sense. Um, so much to talk about. I'm sure we could do. We could have done a whole another webinar on, on on the topics on that blog. Highly recommend uh, you you guys check out the book and also the the blog. Uh, so thank you so much for your time today, and uh, looking forward to uh, keeping in touch. Yeah, thanks a lot again, also for having me. And, and maybe as a side note, I have decided to write another book, although I I, I thought I would never ever. Uh, it will be a novel and has to do with angel, an angel and a founder. So hopefully also something interesting for you. But don't ask me how long it will take. I'm not in a hurry. Um, but yeah, and, and thanks a lot for, for also it's being, being, uh, being, uh, having a relationship to Bangladesh. Uh, it's, it's awesome. And I wish you all great investing. And for me, please 
be so kind to spread the word. I think I wrote this book not to make money. Unfortunately, it's not a cookbook. Um, so uh, it's not about making money. But you know, if you spread the word in your network, if you make a post on LinkedIn, it's so impactful. And, and you know, other people will, will read it and hopefully like it as well. So I, I thank you endlessly if, if, you, if you help me here. Looking forward <laughs> to reading it. But thank you so much for your time, Patrick. Thanks a lot. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Cheers. Bye.